Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Academic Life Channel here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Dana Malone. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Claire Renzetti, Professor and Chair of Sociology and the Judy Conway Patton Endowed Chair for Studies of Violence Against Women at the University of Kentucky. And we'll be talking about her experiences mentoring in the academy. Claire, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dana. I'm happy to be here. We're excited to have you on today. Claire, I wonder if you could begin by telling us a bit about yourself. Well, um, let's see. I'll go back to the beginning. Um, I was born and raised in Wilmington, Delaware, which is the second smallest state in the Union, but also um, you may have heard of Delaware because it's the home state of President Joe Biden. Um, And I also attended school at his alma mater. My alma mater is the University of Delaware. I went there uh, for all of my degrees, undergrad and grad, and I really loved it. Um, I got my PhD in 1982 um, in sociology with a specialty in uh, gender and criminology um, and took my first job at St. Joseph's University in Philadelphia, uh, where I worked for... 26 years, um, 10 of those as department chair. I left there and went to the University of Dayton. Um, I was only there for about five years when I was recruited to the University of Kentucky, um, to the sociology department and uh, to the Center for Research on Violence Against Women um, as an endowed chair. I thought my department chairing days were over, um, but I was there for a couple of years and I was asked if I would chair the sociology department. And I said, yes. Um, I didn't say yes quickly. I don't want to make it sound like I was all that excited about doing chairing again. But um, I I had been in the department for two years and realized what a good group of people it is and how fortunate I was to be there. Um, and they they needed a full professor to chair, and so I agreed to do it. Um, and that was eight years ago, and I just uh, signed up for another two years. Um, so two years from now, I will uh, have I'll be able to say that I spent twenty years of my career as a department chair, um, and some people question uh, my sanity when I say that, but the fact is I've been really fortunate to have, uh, to have chaired two departments that, like I, I, I like to say, chair themselves because I have colleagues who really pitch in and really do their share, um, who are kind to one another and respect one another, um, which makes the chair's job really pretty, pretty easy. And I've had that both at St. Joe's and at University of Kentucky. So I've, I've really been doubly fortunate in that regard. Um, and so that's, that's where I am right now. Okay, thank you. Uh-huh. Um, and I, I always like to let listeners know when I'm talking to someone that I know personally. And um, so I do know Claire. We, um, she's at the University of Kentucky. And I think our listeners know by now that I got my uh, doctorate at the University of Kentucky. And um, so Claire was actually the um, outside examiner um, for my dissertation defense, and and her reputation preceded her. My chair was very um, 
you know, persistent that, you know, we need to have Claire Renzetti on your committee. And I was like, oh, okay. And I was not familiar with Claire before, but she, you know, my chair of my uh, committee was spoke very highly of her and just thought she would be a great fit. And I was like, okay. And, and Claire graciously, I think we had coffee. Um, that, that time was kind yeah. of a brain fog. I think my son was like a, <laughs> like a newborn ish baby at the time and everything was just a fog. I was like, Oh, okay. Um, but I do remember one of my, one of my fond stories and memories of Claire. Um, when I realized, Oh, okay. She, sh- this is legit. Um, I'm sitting in my defense and, um, you know, we're having a lovely conversation. And at one point, one of the main scholars work who I had used and I really dug into, like she had a book and I found her dissertation. And I just um, was was one of the two studies that I really uh, looked at in depth as a model for how I was going to do my own study. And um, so that I knew the scholars work very well. And, and Claire was like, oh, Katie. <laughs> I was like, oh, she's on a first name basis. And she was like, oh, she was a student of mine. And I was like, oh, okay. And, um, you know, I, I laugh because, you know, you know, I'm a graduate student and, and it just, you, you're, you know, it just was like, wow, okay. Kind of like a little behind the curtain scene of, I was like, okay, this is, you know, she's legit. She, she knows people really. Not only does she know them, she like mentored this person. And um, this was a student of hers. And, so you kind of realize also, I think, how small the world is. But then mm-hmm. I, that was my moment when I was like, okay, Claire Renzetti, mm-hmm. yes, she's yeah. she's um, a good person to have in the room today. <laughs> and I was very fortunate and glad that we got connected and stayed yeah. connected. Um, and I will say that Claire um, really helped mentor me through some acad- my first go around with academic publishing. And we're, we're going to talk a bit about that as well today. Mm-hmm. So I um, just wanted to share a little personal story <laughs> and let our listeners know um, that we are talking to a um, a personal um, contact of mine and and um, a friend that I and a colleague and that I, I greatly respect and I'm so glad she's here and I'm um, glad that we got to meet Dana because it's <laughs> really been my pleasure I really in, have enjoyed reading your work it's excellent work and um, I consider myself lucky to have uh, gotten to know you so. Yes. So a little, we're, we're just kind of modeling and mentoring right here on the show, um, which is why um, I wanted Claire on because I know she's done such um, wonderful uh, mentorship in her career. So um, that leads into what, what has inspired you? What, what inspired you to begin mentoring other scholars? Well, I don't think this comes as a surprise to anyone who, who does mentor. Um, It was that I was mentored and it made a huge difference in my life and in my career. Um, I, I had a professor as an undergraduate, uh, Dr. Frank Scarpitti. He taught me my first criminology class. And in fact, it was because of him and that intro to criminology um, that I changed my major and decided to, uh, to pursue that uh, topic. As, as so I, I didn't think of graduate school at the time, but um, he just made it so interesting that, that I wanted to do that. I knew that it was for me. So I made another uh, change of my major. It was uh, my second change of major. <laughs> <laughs> but this one took, right? Third time's the time. <laughs> <laughs> and and um, he was just a lovely person. He, he, didn't, uh, he didn't assume a, a dominant mentoring role. He was truly a guide and offered lots of advice. And when I got to graduate school, he continued that. Um, he was not just a professor, um, but also the department chair. 
And I have to say that I observed him. Um, over, he was department chair for a long time. And I observed him as a department chair in his interactions with faculty and students. I saw how he resolved problems. Um, I saw how he managed a department that had a lot of, I mean, it was a very prominent criminology program. And in that type of program, there are a lot of egos. And he was really good with managing uh, people with... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> big egos, but but who um, sometimes conflict it with one another. And he handled it really well. I mean, he never focused on the person. He always focused on the problem. And I just watched him do all that. And and when I became a department chair, he was really my model um, for how to chair a department. And currently, I, I facilitate a, a program for uh, department chairs at the University of Kentucky called the Chairs Academy. And uh, one of the things that, one of the topics I've been assigned to address in that uh, workshop, um, actually it's a series of workshops that goes over two semesters, but um, my topic that I talk about is uh, dealing with difficult people, which I think is really kind of funny. I don't know what qualifies me to do that in in particular. But um, one of the things I always tell people is, you know, we all have, we all have folks who um, we look up to and who we want to model. And I always mention Frank. Um, I always say when I'm, when I'm in a a bind as a chair, I always think WWFD, what would Frank do? Because he handled these things so well. Sadly, he died um, two years ago, but I got the opportunity to see him several weeks before he died. I went to visit him, and we sat pretty much knee-to-knee, holding hands, and I got to thank him. And I got to tell him what a tremendous impact his mentoring had had on me. And he acted almost surprised. And I said, oh, you just don't know. There's so many things that I do now that go back to you and how you handled things. So. A mentor can have a tremendous influence on you um, and and in a bunch of different ways. And you don't always have just one mentor, but mm-hmm. I, I would say he really stood out to me. Um, and when you have someone like that that you know you're you're benefiting from their guidance, you want to extend that to someone else if you can. And so that has really um, inspired me to, you know, provide guidance answer questions, lend a hand, whatever I can do um, for colleagues, um, which is really what, what mentoring is. It takes a lot of different forms. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that story. And it's such mm-hmm. a, um, I think there's a couple points I just want to highlight there. One, I'm, I'm so glad that you got to tell him what he meant to you. And especially before he passed, what a, what a, I'm sure a special moment for you. And and that he was surprised by that. I think a lot of times we don't realize what our impact can be on others or things that we say or just even how we do our work and how people are are, are watching, our students are watching and um, the impact that has. So I'm so glad you got to share that with him and just um, the lifelong nature of that mentor relationship. Um, I, I have a longtime mentor from my undergrad years. And it's how I got into student affairs work. And he's still someone I text and still someone I 
am in contact with, and I'm sure that I will be for the rest of my life. And and when you think about that over a lifetime, what a what a beautiful thing. And um, so I, I enjoyed hearing that story, and, and thank you for sharing that. Um, at this point in your career, Claire, you've had the opportunity to mentor people all along the um, academic career trajectory, from graduate students to new faculty to seasoned academics. Um, kind of as a way into this conversation, I was hoping you could talk a bit more about your experiences mentoring people along that continuum. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know, as I said, there's so many different types of mentoring and so many different ways we mentor. Um, I think people tend to Think of it as a formal relationship lots of times, that you're matched with a person. Um, and certainly I've participated in those kinds of mentoring programs. Um, I'll be honest with you, uh, they are my least favorite. Um, mm-hmm. I'm happy to volunteer to do things, but I tend to find that um, there has the mentoring relationship needs to be somewhat organic. And this some of these mentoring programs, you end up with, uh, for lack of a better metaphor, a forced marriage. Um, Mm. And they don't always work out real well. um, Because, uh, and and I say this to people who who get frustrated as mentors, I always say, well, you know, mentees are part of the mentoring relationship. It's not all on you. And, And sometimes that relationship just doesn't take particularly if you've been matched by someone else, you know, Um, Mm -hmm. because it's not just a matter of sharing the same, say, research interest, you know, it's Mm -hmm. sort of, uh, you know, being able to feel comfortable with an individual, being able to sit down and talk with them, whether in person or on Zoom or by phone, email conversations, you have to feel, both people have to feel comfortable with one another and sometimes that just doesn't happen unless the relationship has developed organically. Um, so I've found that that uh, some of my most successful or or most I, I don't want to say successful some of my most rewarding experiences, whether it's mentoring undergraduates or graduate students or early career faculty or whatever, has been just when. Um, you know, like in your case, Dana, where we just kind of met by happenstance in a way, or somebody um, said, you know, you should meet this person. Mm-hmm. And, or this, I have a student who has a question. Can you, I think this is up your alley. And you start talking and you just kind of click, you know, and, mm-hmm. um, and, and I like to tell people uh, who seek me out for advice or, or book suggestion or whatever you know, contact me anytime, email me if you, you know, and we'll set up a time to talk, but it doesn't have to be a one-off kind of thing. So, so I feel like that sort of organic growth of the relationship, but also the willingness of the mentor to remain open to mm-hmm. contacts is really important. Um, and, and it's really, you know, it's really rewarding to develop relationships with all different types of people at all different stages of their life and their career, you know, hear, hear different stories and find out different interests. And, um, you know, it just seems to me to be so much better than just signing up and saying, I'm willing to mentor, or I, I need a mentor and match me. Um, mm-hmm. 
and then just having some sort of categories, matching categories. It just doesn't always work out that way. And then the mentor feels like a failure and the mentee feels like, um, you know, gosh, this was a waste of my time. I didn't get anything out of this. <laughs> it's just not yeah. very good, you know? <laughs> um, and we don't, we have, we have limited resources and one of our most limited is time, right? So yeah, nobody totally. wants to waste anybody else's time. Thank you. Um, so thinking also about the, you know, across that career trajectory, have you noticed or observed um, different needs um, in in mentees or, you know, um, and, and mentors across that continuum? Mm-hmm. Or do, as What needs, how they change? What have mm-hmm. you noticed in those relationships? Yeah, that's a great question, Dana. Um, you know, obviously, undergraduate students have different concerns than graduate students or, or early career faculty. So, you know, an undergraduate student may want to talk to you about internship opportunities or, or why did you choose this field? You know, how did you get into this? And, and if I don't want to be a professor, what other things can I do? And, um, you know, and especially I want to go to graduate school. How do I do this? And what's it like? And, and what programs are good programs? And, and of course, one of the things that a mentor can do in that situation is say, I know so-and-so at this university. Let me introduce you guys over email. And you can start asking them questions about their program and that sort of thing. And, and sort of just giving them a foot in the door or introducing them to someone, an alum maybe, who is working in a field that is similar to the field they want to go into after graduation. And that can be very important. You know, graduate students... Um, are typically seeking out advice, career advice, but in a different sense, in a different level. So they might be wanting to make a decision between um, if they want to be a professor, they may want to make a decision between a, a, a research one institution or a smaller teaching, liberal arts teaching institution, or, um, or they need advice about publishing um, because that can be a really scary thing to think about when you're in graduate school. Um, And I've told you I spend tons of time um, doing workshops on publishing for graduate students to take some of the mystery out of the process and make it a little less daunting. Um, And of course, they're seeking uh, mentoring with regard to research. Uh, They may want to try a method um, that they haven't, you know, used before. And you as the mentor, you've used this method repeatedly and you can help, you can provide guidance in terms of, of articles and books to read, but you can also, again, help them get in their, their foot in the door with regard to um, if, they, if they're going, going to do field research, a site, um, if you know people that, that can help them in terms of gaining entree to a, a field research site. And then faculty, of course, early career faculty are concerned with tenure. Um, mm-hmm. And again, publication is a big part of that. But another thing that early career faculty are concerned about is service, the burden of, of institutional service, you know, and what counts, what's important, um, what service should I do? And, and I think what happens lots of time with early career faculty is that um, they feel like they have to say yes to everything they're asked to do. And then... Their time is getting eaten up by service work 
and they're not able to get their research and writing done and they've got they've still got to teach their classes and they want to be good teachers because that's really important to them. Um, and so I, I get asked lots of times for guidance with regard to what service should I do, you know, and, and um, how much and, and what's, what counts and that sort of thing. Um, and, and, you know, along the, along the faculty uh, rank trajectory, you know, you may have somebody who is a tenured full professor um, and has, has always done journal publications and now they want to write a book and they don't, they don't know how to go about getting a publisher or um, writing a, a book proposal or that sort of thing. Um, or you may have someone who has never uh, uh, applied for a grant before um, and or have, has never applied for a grant from a particular agency um, and they seek you out to ask you questions about that. And, and it's really just a collegial relationship. You know, you're, you're just um, sharing advice and sharing information that may be helpful and always putting people in touch with other people. I, I think one of the neatest things about mentoring and being mentored is that it, it, it creates even more new relationships. So you end up developing a network and connecting people and and getting to know new people as a result of mentoring and being mentored. And um, that's really exciting. And it's also really fun. I mean, it's beneficial career wise, but it's beneficial personally, too. You know, it's, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I think of it, too, in terms of just, uh, you know, to, to linger a minute on that last point. Um, you know, I think I, I think it happens professionally or there's similar dynamics professionally and personally with our relationships of people like and you spoke to this, like the organic nature. It's it's who you click with and your mm-hmm. ways of being kind of being similar or, you know, your research interests or or whatever that is, but you click on some level. And so mm-hmm. um, you know, that I feel like that multiplies when it's like, oh, you know, like I, uh, my chair and I had a, had a great relationship and I know you meet regularly with her, like your friends mm-hmm. with her. And she yeah. was like, Oh, you know, it wasn't just a, you know, just because Claire, you know, is, is, is connected in, in this area and knows this area you should, you know, and, and we did, you know, we did kind of do that. Um, I wrote my dissertation with the intention of making it a book. And so mm-hmm. you know, she was like, this is a great connection for you, but I think, you know, you were friends and, and so, and, and she and I got along well. So, I mean, you know, you meet other kindred yep. kind of, spirits in yeah. that way. So like yeah. we had a great connection, you have a great connection. So th- you know that just multiplies. I I think there's just more of a chance that that happens when yeah. you have good connections and then obviously if you're connecting with this person and you know you're probably going to connect well with the people that they connect well with. Yeah. And so you know that then organically does grow from there and that's it's really neat um to yeah. see as you said. And isn't that um, part of the richness of of life? I mean, yes, it's it's this, um, you know, connecting with new people and developing new relationships. And, and it, you know, as I said, when we first started talking, so many people think of mentoring as this formal kind of official relationship, you know, and setting up official times to meet and, you know, and all this other stuff. And, and actually, you know, it it can, you develop a relationship like this, and it, it can be very social, it can be very informal, and it can really be fun. And, and both the mentor and the mentee are enriched by it. And that's really the best kind of mentoring relationship. 
You know, it's, mm. it's really, it's something that's beneficial to everybody involved because it's enriching for everybody involved. And, and that makes it, of course, more enjoyable too. Oh, for sure. And sometimes I think of it in terms of like you're saying, like it's a, a formal like set times and things. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think of it as like I have a number of friends who and especially as I age, I just realize there's just not enough time. And I have a number <laughs> of friends. I realize I have these kinds of lots of these kinds of relationships where I may go years not talking to someone mm-hmm. and then I could pick up the phone and we could talk for hours like it was mm-hmm. yesterday that I saw them right. or, um, right. you know, because it's just life and you you get busy and you don't live in the same city or town or state anymore. And, yeah. um, you know, and I'll realize, gosh, it's probably been years, but we're literally chatting like I saw you yesterday. And and I think yeah. of, you know, kindred mentors in that same way. I mean, yeah. I think it had been a while since I had connected with you, you know, probably a couple of years since I connected yeah. with you. And I and you came to mind when I was doing the podcast and I thought Claire would be great. And so out of the blue, I sent you an email <laughs> and I was like, Claire. Um, and, and it was like no time had passed. And so I think, you know, there's just, just those connections, mm-hmm. how important they are and picking, you know, and it doesn't have to always be the set thing, but just keeping those doors open, as you said, yeah. and that there's an openness on both sides is, is, yeah. is really special. Um, I, I want to, um, spend just a few minutes. I have a question here about, cause you have such, um, rich experience in this area. And I do feel like our listeners really do, um, uh, gravitate to and appreciate when we talk about um, publishing and, mm-hmm. and that process. So you have a great deal of experience mentoring people through academic publishing, that process. Mm-hmm. Can you speak to that a bit more for us, maybe perhaps in terms of what you found to be most helpful for scholars going through that process and maybe the kinds of things, um, advice or perspectives or information mm-hmm. that you find that they need the most or find the most valuable? Yeah, sure. So um, as you know, I edit a a journal, Violence Against Women. It's an international and interdisciplinary journal. It's published now 16 times a year. <laughs> wow. I'm the founding editor, and I've been doing it for 27 years. Mm-hmm. We Last year in 2020, we received uh, over 740 manuscript submissions. Uh, not all of them go out for peer review, but the vast majority do. I mean, some just, you know, get every every manuscript gets a preliminary review, and we check uh, you know, to make sure it's a good fit for the journal, make sure it's readable, you know, that sort of thing. Um, so we have to match uh, the manuscripts with peer reviewers. And then I, I also edit three book series, one for Oxford University Press that I co-author with Jeff Edelson, one for University of California Press, and one for Cognello, which is more of a textbook publisher. So I spend a lot of my time uh, reading manuscripts and engaged in the publication process, in addition to publishing my own work, <laughs> writing to publish my own so work. You're not, you're not, bu- you're not too busy. You're not too busy. <laughs> well, I say that because I, I know, um, both sides of the equation. Yes, yes. I know what it's like to get rejected, yes. uh, probably more than I, I would prefer to admit, <laughs> uh, but, but I also know the other side of it. And, and, what I always tell people is, you know, when you get a review, um, I know how hard it is to read reviews. Sometimes you sit there and you think, did this person actually read the paper? It sounds like they're talking about another paper, you know, or, or something (laughs) like that. And, and sometimes people are not real constructive or helpful with their reviews, but I always tell people, you know, put it aside for a while, calm down and then go back and look at it and glean major points from this because, if you think, well, gee, this person just didn't get what I was saying, 
that may be an indication to you that you didn't explain it very well. I mean, if they didn't get it, chances are maybe somebody else isn't going to get it either. So it's, it's not, the burden isn't on the reader to understand what you're trying to say. It's on you to get them to understand uh, what you're trying to say. So I, I always tell people to really take reviews um, to heart and to approach them with an open mind because in most cases, there are things in those reviews that you will certainly benefit from and that will be valuable in making your manuscript, whether it's a book manuscript or a journal manuscript, stronger. You know, it's just sometimes it, we're, we are attached to our work. You know, it's a part of us. We've spent a lot of time on it. We've produced it. It's very dear to us. And then somebody's telling us what's wrong with it. And that's that's hard. That's hard to take. And we become defensive. So I tell people to try not to be defensive. I also tell them, though, that ultimately, you know, this this piece of work is yours. You own it and your name is going on it. And a reviewer could be wrong about something or it just might not make sense. So you don't have to comply with every request for revision, but if you're not going to do something, you need to have a rationale for why you're not going to do it. You need to address that and say, well, here's why I don't think I should change this, or here's why that type of analysis won't work or whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yes. and, and probably the most fundamental thing I tell people is uh, do your homework before you send anything to anybody. Do your homework. If you're, if you're, uh, what I mean by that is, if if you want to send a manuscript to a journal, oh my gosh, you know how many journals? There are hundreds of journals out there, right? In any one field, and some of them only publish quantitative work. Some of them only publish qualitative work. Some of them don't publish um, uh, case studies. Some of them only publish experimental studies. You know, so. Just because you've heard that a journal is a great journal and it's highly ranked and has a great impact factor, that doesn't mean that your manuscript fits there or belongs there. So, you know, now with everything online, this is so easy to do. You don't even have to walk into the library and go to the stacks and look at these things. Just go online and peruse the various journals that you're interested in submitting to or Go to different publishers' websites and see what kind of books they publish. You know, if they don't publish, if they don't have a a social work list, for example, then don't send a social work manuscript to them. You know, those are just very fundamental things. And and people are probably sitting there going, well, duh, yeah, I, you know, of course you would. I can't tell you how many people don't do that. They go on the reputation of say where they're they're favorite faculty member publishes. They go on the reputation of the journal. It's so highly ranked. Um, and they, or they, they're just, it's aspirational. I really want to publish in this journal. That's great, but you got to make sure that your manuscript is the, is the right fit for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's very easy to find that out. And if you can't find it online, you can query the editor. I get editor queries all the time. Um, people send me an email and they'll send me the abstract of their manuscript and they'll say, do you think this, this fits? Um, do you think this would be a good fit? Should I submit it? And of course, I always say, I can't guarantee you it'll be published, but yes, it falls within the mission and scope of the journal or no, we don't publish that kind of thing. You know, And 
And then they don't waste more time by submitting it if we don't publish that sort of stuff. Now, again, most of the time you can find that online. And I always think, why didn't you just go online? But there are some things that they may not know. So for example, somebody will say, you know, I've only seen a couple of case studies published in the journal. And and do you, do you publish them? And the fact is that we really don't. Um, those have been truly exceptions. And typically they've been in special issues and that kind of thing. So it does help if you've already perused the journal and your questions were not answered to, to do a query to the editor. And you can always query a publisher as well. Find the editor for the, the type of book, the subject matter that you're publishing in. Send them an email. Remember that these editors at, at publishing companies are super busy. They get swamped with requests and proposals, and sometimes whole manuscripts just come in out of nowhere. So it may take them a little while, but most of them are great at responding to emails. Because again, they're, they're trying to save you time, and they're trying to save themselves time, and they're trying to save reviewers time too. Mm. So those are just you know, like little things that um, I do. I've done a whole series of videos on academic publishing for the American Sociological Association. I think I sent you the link Dana. So people can go on and I think look at that. I'm not sure if you have to be a member or not. Yeah, they may have to be a Um, member. We'll have to to see about that. Yeah, I don't Um, know, but. But that's no, that's great. And and a lot of those things seem simple or like, you know that, but um, fit is huge. Fit's huge Mm -hmm. for most areas of life, I feel Mm -hmm. like. Um, Mm -hmm. And definitely for, for publishing. And, you know, to that point about that it's, you know, remembering that it's ultimately at the end of the day, it's your work with your mm-hmm. name on it. And I think as a as a graduate student or early um, academic, a young academic, you know, sometimes that um, you can lose that. You can lose that mm-hmm. piece of this is my work and, and you don't have to take every note that comes yeah. down the pike. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, I remember that being unclear for me as a graduate student sometimes, like, okay, so this is what's being asked of me by my chair. Is this like, do I have to do this? Do I not have to do mm-hmm. this? I'm not sure if I want to do this. And even when I was publishing um, my book, I almost had a different title because someone gave me a note, an editor of the series didn't prefer a from to title. And I thought mm-hmm. I needed to change it. And then I had this, like someone spoke into that from me. They were like, why did you change that? And I was like, mm-hmm. I thought I, you know, there, and I, yeah. and, and I drove my, honestly, my editor crazy. Cause then I was yeah. like, I don't really want to change it. I loved my title. Yeah. And so um, I think about that. It's like a, a big lesson I learned of like, at the end of the day, it's my work with my name and, yep. and you need to be, and, and I'm the one who has to live with that. Right. And yeah, ultimately, exactly. and, um, and, but that can be a hard um, thing to negotiate of, of, is this a suggestion or do I really have to do this? Um, well, sometimes sure. as a graduate student and then also right. in the editing process of, and what, right. what are the implications if I don't, but like you said, explaining your rationale or explaining where, you fall and land on that. But um, so it seems simple, but I think they're really important and nuanced lessons that sometimes um, are hard. You can, they can be hard well, earned and hard learned. Especially when you're new at it, right? Yes. I mean, anything yes. that, that you don't have a lot of experience with can be pretty challenging and, and you're unsure of yourself because you just haven't done this before or yeah. you haven't done it very much. And, and again, a, a mentor can really help in this yes. regard. Yes. Seasoned, yes. Someone who's seasoned in publishing can really help in that regard. And, and I think sometimes uh, people are afraid to ask for that kind of help because they're afraid that it will look bad 
for them that they they will look unprofessional or they'll they'll look um stupid i mean for lack yeah. of a better word yeah. you know why shouldn't i know this well no why should mm -hmm. you know this why should, um, yeah. you know you you've you've not done this before um we've all been there so yeah. uh somebody who's done it a lot can certainly help somebody coming along and and just hearing you know what, I don't have to change everything. You know, it can be such yeah. a relief, right? It can yeah. just be yeah. such a relief. Well, no, you don't. If you have a good reason not to, just say yeah. what your reason is, right? Um, well, and that's and that's the value of a mentor, as you said. It was actually um, another scholar um, who was a reviewer of, of my work, whose work mm -hmm. I'd used for years. And she said to me, why did you change this? And I thought, oh my gosh. And um and it's almost like, you you know, like, as you said, someone who had been through, you know, who had published extensively and who had been through this process saying, you don't, you know, you don't have to do that. It's like, oh, you don't know what you don't know sometimes. Right. And exactly. Um, but I think that speaks to the importance of um, trust in, in a mentor mm -hmm. relationship of mm -hmm. being able to share that or ask like, you know, what's, what's the unspoken thing here? Like, I'm not really sure and feeling safe right. enough in a relationship to to ask that question, um, because sometimes these decisions have really, you know, big, um, you know, impact. Um, yeah. and you know, that would, I think that was like the title of my book. I was like, I hate for the rest of my life. I'm like, I don't really like that title. <laughs> that would be horrible. Um, and so I, I use that example and I go back to that in my mind a lot when I'm like, mm. I'm like, nope, I'm going to hold my ground here because I have to live with this. And so, but I think that speaks to the, the importance of having trust, um, in a relationship and yeah. a safe space to be able to ask those things and be vulnerable in what you don't know. Yeah, um, and having absolutely. a mentor say, well, why would you know that? Like that makes right. you feel so much, but why would you know you haven't done this before? Right. Yeah. Just like anything yeah. in life, you haven't been through it. Um, so you wouldn't know, would you, unless someone, you know, you go through it and someone shares experience and that mm -hmm. is the value of a mentor. Mm -hmm. Um, so as you mentioned, you are a gender scholar among many other things. And so with that in mind, I was wondering, um, based on your experiences and observations, um, have you noticed any gender dynamics worth noting when it comes to mentoring relationships in the academy? That's a good question because that comes up all the time, right? I mean, yeah. the, the historically an argument has been made that, you know, women scholars don't get mentored because the academy has been dominated by men and uh, people mentor people who are most like them that, you know, that they can identify with. Um, and I know, I know, I mean, there's, there's empirical research that verifies that, right? Um, mm -hmm. My personal experience was not that at all. You know, I told you my mentor, mm -hmm. um, I mean, <laughs> that was way back, right? In this, <laughs> the late 70s that I was an undergraduate. I got my PhD in 82. So that was a long time ago. And, and uh, actually, I will say that when I was in graduate school, yes, I specialized in sociology of gender. But um, at that time, that specialty did not officially exist in our department. I had to petition um, to be able to take a comprehensive exam in that. And I had to form an interdisciplinary committee I had a psychologist, an anthropologist, a philosopher, and a sociologist on the committee for the comprehensive exam in sociology of gender, um, whereas most comp committees were three people from the same department. You know? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you know, uh, 
yeah, back then things were not so easy when it came to gender and there was a lot of sexism, not that there isn't any more, but I'm just saying that I, I ended up having a, a man as a mentor and it worked very, worked very well. Um, I never felt uh, lesser. I never felt unwelcome. I never, I never felt um, that he gave uh, male mentees more attention or more uh, help or more offers than he did me. I never felt threatened um, in terms of sexual harassment or anything like that. Um, I always felt very safe and, and I was able to talk to him very easily. That's not always the case. And, and I do know that there, there are male uh, senior faculty who have abused their positions of authority, um, particularly with, with uh, female mentees. Um, so, so I guess it's, you know, I think it matters. I think gender matters. And I also think race matters. You know, yeah. I mean, we're talking yeah. about gender, but think of all the, the uh, young graduate students of color, all the young faculty of color who don't see anyone like themselves in the academy. You know, um, mm -hmm. a, a young black female scholar in a department with all white males or even white males and maybe a couple of, of uh, male senior scholars of color. They don't see themselves, and I and I think that they may be able to develop a good mentoring re relationship with one of those people not like them. But the fact is, it's going to be harder in the sense that there's going to be that divide, and I think the onus is on the faculty, the senior faculty, the the potential mentors, to make it clear that they can be good mentors. You know, you're never going to share that individual's positionality. You can't, you know, but that doesn't mean you can't be a good, a good mentor to them and a very positive mentor for them. So, you know, I, I hope I'm not dancing around this too much, but I, no. I, I think it's really important for us to, um, particularly people who are more senior in the academy, to think about and not to overlook these differences. The differences matter. And they particularly matter for the people who, for the mentees. Um, and so the onus is on us. And, and I think that, yes, we can be good mentors. Um, we can also connect them with other people we know in our networks that can provide um, mentoring that we can't provide because of our positionality. Because again, the mentoring is not just one on one on one, as we said before, it's building networks. So you're not mm -hmm. going to just have one mentor in your career or in your undergraduate or graduate training. You're going to have multiple mentors. So a good mentor will connect, as we said, the mentee with lots of people. Um, so I think gender matters and I think race matters and I think gender identity and, and gender and sexual identity matter. Um, all of all of those uh, identity variables, for lack of a better term, make a big difference. They, they help us construct the relationships we construct. They're very much a part of, of who we are and who we interact with. But I don't think they have to shut down 
uh, the possibility of, of mentoring relationships with people unlike us. And also, we need to build beyond just that one-on-one relationship. So yeah, I think it does matter. Um, but I also think we can, can build from it. The, the mentor has to be cognizant of the difficulties the mentee will have. I, I see too many people who just say, well, you know, gender doesn't matter. Color doesn't matter. You know, race, ethnicity doesn't matter. Uh, immigration status doesn't matter. We're, we're all colleagues. Well, uh, baloney. <laughs> you know? yeah. I caught myself. I caught myself. That's um, okay. We're all, we're all big kids here, I think. <laughs> um, it does. All those things matter. Yeah. All those things matter, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think, um, and I will be sure to um, put a link in the resources to this episode of of the um, interview I did on um, mapping your mentor network. Um, and, and that was a great conversation because that's, that's the whole, the whole gamut too, is that you don't just have one mentor yeah. um, mm-hmm. in the course of your career, or even at any one moment, you should have multiple um, people that you can call upon um, because not one person is going to fulfill all of those, you know, all that you need in all the different mm-hmm. areas um, for your career. And e- even at one time and people are going to have different strengths. And so you can play, you know, play to those. But I think the piece that you mentioned about just being able to connect, you know, yeah. um, doesn't mean you can't be a good mentor, but I think, you know, being aware of the, you know, the person in the more senior um, powerful position, being aware of their, the importance of them acknowledging and recognizing those dynamics um, yeah. and where they fall short and, and the onus and responsibility for how to, you know, improve and change and make connections and open doors to other relationships and, yeah. um, you know, and fill those gaps that are there um, and acknowledging um, those gaps because, you know, we, we're not all going to find people who, you know, you know, check every positionality, right. know, quote unquote box, right? I hate to right. use that word, but in, in essence, um, I think mothering is a, is another parenting mm-hmm. and, and mothering especially is another huge piece um, that people really um, need and, and uh, desire, you know, mentoring around. That's, that can be a very difficult thing to navigate in the mm-hmm. academy um, mm-hmm. and, and all the unspoken gender dynamics um, and stereotypes that come with that. Um and, and I remember going through that when I was a graduate student too, mm-hmm. of like, oh, you know, what are people, you know, you don't know what people are really thinking and, yeah. you know, what they think this is, how this is going to affect your work and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And so I think there's so many um, different pieces to who we are as people. We're very, you know, it's a very complex and so is mentoring because it's a, it's a human endeavor and it's a human relationship. And, um, and, well, and these you know, position, these positionality, they, all this stuff intersects, all these identity yeah variables intersect. So it's not just a matter of saying, oh, you know, we're going to focus on race or we're going to focus on gender or we're going to focus on sexual identity. They all intersect. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, that Patricia Hill Collins's concept Mm -hmm. of of the matrix of domination, it really matters. It really, really matters. They're not linear, you know? Um, And it's really hard to, to deal with that, but it's worth dealing with. It's, it's a must if, if, we're going to have productive mentoring relationships. I think sometimes people who want to mentor just think it's, you know, you just do it and you don't, you don't need to think about these things. You give advice. But I think you have to really be aware of your own positionality as a mentor, you know? 
mm-hmm. not think in terms of the mentee as much as what what power do you have? Yeah. What are you doing with this with this power? What are you doing with this position that you have, this authority? How is this affecting different people who are coming to you? And I, I think that lots of times senior faculty mentors don't think about that, mm-hmm. you know, or don't want, maybe don't, some don't want to think about it, but I don't, I don't think you can have a good relationship, a productive and healthy relationship really with anybody, um, unless you think about those things, because there are power dynamics in every, every relationship, every situation, and particularly in the academy. We like to think that you know, we're all equal, but in the academy, there's so much of that going on. Oh, yeah, so no, there's, there's definitely a hierarchy. And, yeah, and if you're, in, if you're so. on the bottom end of that, you yep. are very well aware of it. You are. <laughs> you're very you are. well aware of it. You can't afford to ignore it, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. And so it helps a whole lot when the folks at the top of that hierarchy are aware of that and yeah. are helping and um, using their positionality and their yep. power in ways to shift dynamics for the better. Yep. And to open doors and opportunities and make connections and all of those things. And, and, you know, back to your point about how it all intersects, the thing to remember too is no matter, you know, what that positionality is, it it intersects and looks differently for every person. And that's, that's the reality too. Context matters. It matters Mm -hmm. the context of the, the, where the advice is coming from and the context Mm -hmm. of where the advice is being directed. Like it's every, you know, what? Can you tell what well, qualitative? Everything's contextual, <laughs> right? Everything's um, contextual, and that context yeah. matters, um, and positionality matters, and power matters, and and um, being aware of that is is really the first step um, to to making it a healthy, safe space. Um, because you know that's what people are doing in these relationships. There, you're trying to figure out what can I say, what can I not say, what can I ask, what can I not ask, what can mm-hmm. I share, mm-hmm. and um, because you don't know how it's going to be perceived until mm-hmm. you know you you know, to you realize, okay, I think this is a safe space. I can share these things. Um, mm-hmm. And so about, yeah. about my positionality, about where I'm coming from, or about my questions, about all of that. And so to have, you know, I agree with you, to have the most productive, healthy, useful relationship is to be aware of that, to create that safe space um, mm-hmm. so that it benefits um, not just that individual person, that mentee, but the academy as a whole, yes. right? To move yeah, in, to point. move, to move in a better place to move us all Mm -hmm. to a better place, um, in the academy. Oh, Claire, um, I have so many more questions I would love to ask you. Um, (laughs) but, but we are at time. So thank you so much. Um, I will, I will ask if you, um, care to maybe share just before we close, um, what you're working on now, if you want to share that with listeners. Um, oh, sure. I'd be happy to. So, um, one of the projects that I'm working on that I just absolutely love and want to always tell everybody about is um, I'm working with uh, Diane Fallingstead, who is a um, clinical and forensic psychologist. She and I are co-PIs on a um, federally funded uh, research project that's evaluating um, the therapeutic horticulture program at uh, the local Better Women's Shelter in Lexington. Um, Our shelter in Lexington is called Greenhouse 17. They changed their name a few Mm -hmm. years ago from the Bluegrass Domestic Violence Program. Um, and the, the name reflects the fact that the shelter is located on farmland. Um, it's, mm. it's actually right adjacent to a horse farm and the horses come over to the fence and stuff, which the kids there absolutely love. 
But um, what started out as a pretty small farm has grown into quite an enterprise. And they have a space now where they can make um, soaps and lotions and lip balms and things like that. They do flower and vegetable CSAs. They um, grow food for the shelter. And they have now a, a chef in the kitchen who... Uh, talks about nutrition and prepares food right from the garden, right from the farm. They have lots of different crops. There's a farm manager. But our project um, evaluates the residents' participation in the farming, in the horticulture, um, actually going out and, you know, planting, um, weeding, harvesting, et cetera, all the chores that have to be done um, in farming. because there's a, a whole body of literature on how uh, interacting with nature um, and engaging in these types of activities are restorative, particularly for people who have experienced trauma. But it's never been um, tested before with a women who have experienced intimate partner violence. And uh, it was started at this shelter, and we got very excited about it. They were telling us anecdotal evidence about women who were having really good outcomes after participating in the farm, but they didn't have any systematic empirical data. Um, They only had some good stories. And of course, you know, if you want to keep getting funding for something, you need some proof that it's working. And so Mm -hmm. we developed a really great partnership with the staff at the shelter. And we applied for this grant from the Office on Violence Against Women and got it. And we're uh, in our, let's see, our fifth year. One year was paused. It doesn't count because of COVID. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We're in our fifth year. (laughs) This is really our last year. Um, But what happens is women can elect to, to work on the farm and they get paid for the work that they do. And they can work for up to six weeks. Um. And then we have basically what we call the control group, the women who don't want to work on the farm, but they engage in standard shelter programming. And we do measures, various measures, measures of self-esteem, self-efficacy, I mean, you know, stuff like that um, at baseline and then at various points during the shelter stay. And then we do a post-shelter interview and we're going to compare uh, the outcomes for the women who participate in the therapeutic horticulture program with those who participate in just uh, standard shelter programming. I will give you a little hint or a little preview. (laughs) Uh, The preliminary findings that we've looked at so far indicate that both groups of women show improvement um, from baseline, from when they enter the shelter in all sorts of areas. They get get better. Um, But the women who are doing the horticulture program are getting even better than that. So their Mm -hmm. scores are even higher. So just being at the shelter and engaging in standard programming is beneficial to the women. It helps them in all sorts of areas. Um, But those who are participating in the farm program so far, it looks like they're having uh, better outcomes in, in certain areas. So stay tuned. Um, (laughs) We'll be publishing a lot of, a lot of results from this study in the next couple of years. It sounds like an amazing project. And um, I am familiar with that organization. I did some volunteering with them when I lived mm-hmm. in Lexington. So it's wonderful to hear 
um, how it's grown and, and, and the, you know, the programs that you're, you're doing in the study sounds pretty fabulous. So thank it's you so much. It's a wonderful place. It's a great place. I'm, I'm really fortunate to be associated with them and the staff there is fabulous. Really, really yes, great. Yes. And the women thank are you. amazing in terms of their resilience. I, I just, I'm in awe of the women who are there. They're just amazing women and children. Yes. Yes. It sounds, yeah, it is. I, it was a it was a wonderful program and I was a part mm. of it years ago and it sounds like it's grown just exponentially mm-hmm. and you've done yeah. you're doing so much great stuff there. Um, so that will be exciting to to hear about and to share about. Um, and maybe we'll have you back on to talk about you know some of that <laughs> I'd stuff. Love to. I'd There's love so, to. I I have so many topics I could have you talk about Claire. Um, and and we touched on just a few of them today. But thank you so much for being on the My show pleasure. today and sharing your experiences and expertise on mentoring in particular in the academy. Um, So thank you. It's truly my pleasure, Dana. Thank you for having me. I'm Dr. Dana Malone. This is The Academic Life, and you've been listening to New Books Network. Please join us again.